Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. It's Tuesday, April the 11th, one day before the Chappella upgrade. You know the drill by now, so let's get right into the agenda. This week, we have got George, who's going to run us through a market update. David's going to run us through a macro and research. Greg is on trade flows as usual. And then we've got Sid bringing up the back with DeFi and Web3. Obviously, a ton going on there with regards to Chappella. So he's going to give us all the key timings, dates, things to look out for as we go through that upgrade. As you all know, we're available on podcasts. So if you're watching on YouTube, please scan that QR and subscribe with Apple, Spotify, Audible, whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And we look forward to seeing you there. Without further ado, George, over to you. Let's have a quick market update, please. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so BTC is finally back above 30K and ETH is approaching 2K after almost a year. And this comes after a week, which was actually pretty quiet for most part, very range bound price action until yesterday with uh, BTC starting out uh, consolidating around 28K almost the last two weeks, actually ETH all around 1800 to 1850 USD and then the breakout uh, yesterday. So looking at the, looking at the uh, TA, the picture in uh, Bitcoin, if you focus on that, looks actually relatively bullish, I would say, with this consolidation and now uh, the breakout with the bullish pennant forming um, and uh, the next immediate target somewhere, um, if you look at the charts, probably around 32 to 32 and a half K, which was a very important uh, resistance during the sell-off last year and an important support during the uh, bull market when we had sell-offs in 2021. But one scenario I'm watching in particular is if we were to get a, a consolidation uh, in a broader range between a 28 to 32K, which would be in line again with the, uh, the consolidation levels we've previously seen during uh, last year. Um, and then potentially uh, a rollover of uh, capital from the majors, BTC and ETH uh, into altcoins. Um, but having said that, so far, of course, the narrative in BTC and ETH uh, are completely outshining and stealing the show here uh, from uh, the altcoins with BTC dominance uh, around 48.5%. So that's, again, attempting a breakout from the two-year range that we have been in. And if you actually look at the combined ETH plus BTC dominance, that's currently at uh, 68%. And uh, you could make the case that it's actually already breaking out as just about uh, above that upper bound of the two year range that uh, we've been in. And then one other interesting thing uh, that I was actually looking at is uh, if you overlay the previous market cycles um, of BTC, so halving to halving and compare where we are uh, now in the cycle compared to the previous cycles of history is any guide. Obviously, there still is some uh, some choppy waters ahead of us, probably. Uh, but we are definitely getting uh, much closer to the next uh, bull market, I would say. Thanks, George. Um, I'd love to bring uh, David and Greg in here as well. So guys, it's been uh, all about Bitcoin and ETH uh, and really all about Bitcoin the last few weeks. Like, what should we be looking out for here? Like, Can we expect this kind of rally to move to ETH at any point or to, to altcoins? David, maybe let's, let's start with you. Like, How are you thinking about the setup so far? Yeah, I think it's a little bit tougher in this cycle because there are a lot of specific idiosyncratic uh, developments that happen to support the Bitcoin price. And I think the regulatory environment, for example, may have contributed to that because a lot of people were a bit concerned about non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. For example, we saw some rotation from stable coins into Bitcoin over the month uh, on the back of the banking crisis. Plus, of course, there was a short gamma squeeze higher. So I think all of those elements uh, probably aren't necessarily replicable for some of the other coins. 
but certainly, I think with the Chappella upgrade coming up, uh, there is going to be renewed attention on what's happening to ETH in particular. So I will be looking ahead to that. Uh, but the normal cycle we see of like Bitcoin performance kind of migrating to the ETH and then to some of the altcoins, I think it could be there, but I would expect it to be a bit more dragged out. Interesting. And, and Greg, is it fair to say this rally is slightly hated? What, what would you what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I would say it is. Um, you know, even the folks that I think caught a good portion of it um, feel you know rather underallocated here, and I think that's why we're seeing uh, volumes uh, come down a little bit. Um, you know, folks are wary. They don't. We've come so far, so fast, um, and there's a lot of uncertainty as to you know what price uh, and where we're going next. Um, but because people are underallocated, the pain trade seems to be higher. So I wouldn't be surprised if um, we see some continuation of current price action here. And, and David, I know one of your theories, which, which I think is right, is that perhaps some of these flows are coming away from altcoins into BTC and ETH um, for the various kind of narratives we're hearing, but also around maybe some of the regulatory concerns about altcoins. What do you think it takes for those flows to maybe reverse or for us to see slightly more even distribution across the, the majors and some of the longer tail? I think probably the macro environment is going to contribute to that. Um, I think even though we've seen the correlation between like say Bitcoin and the S&P like drop dramatically. So, you know, we were at the start of the year somewhere like around 56%, for example, we're down to around 24%. Uh, which is pretty substantive. I mean, it's basically showing that there's very little relationship between like Bitcoin and, and U.S. stocks, for example. Uh, still, I, I would say that the macro environment matters. Uh, we we are still looking to see what the Fed's going to do, uh, whether they're going to actually su suggest a pivot. There are many broad definitions of what people consider a pivot. I think we really need to kind of see that. And uh, certainly the positive seasonality in April helps. Uh, but I think we're, we're currently focused a lot on what these individual stories are. Uh, and I think we to, to move away from that and kind of get the broad environment, we got to see what's going on in terms of how rates are going to be performing. Yeah, that, that's fair. And, and George, how does it feel kind of everywhere in, in Europe? We were on a call yesterday with, with a client and uh, one of, one of the, the team, not on this call, suggested that we could see Bitcoin north of 60K by the end of the year. Like, how does that feel to you? And, and is there like a European kind of flavor to this at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's probably definitely one of one of the more bullish takes, but um, it, I, I fully agree with everything I was said before. I think um, the, the narrative is uh, that was around in 2021 with Bitcoin as digital gold. I mean, that's really uh, the one that a lot of the um, the folks from traditional funds are talking about. And, um, you know, uh, I think if we do break above 32 and a half K technically here, then we could definitely see uh, a, a strong rally. And um, previously, um, so as I was mentioning earlier, the, the BTC dominance uh, being at the upper bound of the range, uh, BTC and ETH also being quite high up. If we do break higher there, uh, I think we can certainly see um, Bitcoin making uh, big moves um, and perhaps sucking even uh, more capital out of altcoins. Yeah, and just to comment on that, you know, $60,000 uh, you know, price target, um, what, looking at flows, uh, we've had this, you know, huge move off the bottom. Um, you know, Bitcoin's up 100%. And that's really happened uh, with the absence of a significant amount of new money or market participants coming in. So, you know, if uh, the macro environment does become more favorable, 
and uh, folks start to really allocate um, to crypto, uh, and we do see new money come into the market, given that liquidity levels are as low as they are, I think we could you know, get to 60,000. Um, you know, it's, it's not my base case, um, but I do see a path where we're considerably higher at the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's interesting from a couple of client calls yesterday, uh, one with a, a very, very large uh, traditional hedge fund kind of focusing on more kind of the growthy areas. And, and they were saying that while crypto is, is interesting and has, has been interesting in the past, what's really got people interested again is, is the price action. When you plot up against the S&P, up against gold, up against NASDAQ, et cetera, it's outperforming so much, it's kind of hard to ignore. And, and then kind of speaking to some of the more crypto native folks, like I think a lot of people have perhaps tried to catch the back end of this rally. And to your point, Greg, they missed the start, but they, they didn't want to miss the end and have, have kind of been positioning over the last few days to try and uh, see BTC kind of break 30K and actually be involved. But, but David, I know you look at stablecoin percentages and uh, I think those numbers have been moving a little bit. Like, what can we read into there in relation to this rally? Yeah, I think an important part to note is that what has been contained inside the crypto ecosystem, a lot of that's now in stablecoins because of the banking turmoil we saw in March. Um, so even if you look at the stablecoin dominance ratios, for example, that dropped from around 14.5% uh, right around like March 9th, around the time of the, uh, the banking stress. And it subsequently has dropped to around 11.2% at the moment. So that suggests to me that already we've seen a lot of conversion from stable coins into BTC or ETH or, or some of the altcoins, um, which, you know, I think is a counterbalance to some of the positive seasonality trends we've been seeing. Uh, that suggests to me that like a lot of the technicals, there doesn't seem to be like a lot of more room for uh, additional conversions from at least that pool of capital. So that's something I would caution uh, some of our users about. And then uh, just just one other point uh, to add as well on on uh, something that Greg was mentioning with regards to uh, the runway that this rally could have with regards to positioning as well. So uh, we've actually done a survey uh, at the end of last year, sort of asking our clients um, what the expectations were for um, you know where BTC is going to end up at the end of this year. And I think um, if my memory serves me right, the median expectation was somewhere around uh, 25k. For BTC. So I think, uh, again, going back to your pain point, Ben, it, it really shows that um, price action uh, creates the, the narratives and, uh, again, demonstrates that no one was really bullish uh, in, in the very beginning of the year. And um, I wouldn't be surprised again if, you know, um, it's like a bit like this meme where you have uh, BTC at 20K and um, no one's in the queue. And then you've got uh, BTC at 60K and uh, everyone's going to be queuing up and jumping ahead of themselves trying to uh, get a chunk. Yeah, I think Bitcoin, as we all know, is so pro-cyclical and, and, and really kind of does start to accelerate when you, once you do get a momentum. I think one area that we, we would love to see a bit more activity is probably in the retail space, right? Like that is an area where once, once retail gets involved, um, things can, uh, can, can certainly kind of make new ground in some ways. So to that, to that point, George, I know NFTs is an area where retail are very engaged. Is there anything happening there that we should be taking note of? Yeah, so there were a couple of uh, interesting headlines from the NFT space over the last week, actually. Uh, so first of all, uh, the competition uh, in the space for market volume seems to be heating up a bit. Uh, so OpenSea launched a pro version, which is effectively a rebrand of uh, Gem V2, which is an NFT aggregator that was uh, acquired by OpenSea in April uh, last year. 
but if you look at the numbers, actually, uh, over the last week, for instance, uh, Blur was responsible for 67% of market volume, OpenSea around uh, 20%, I think, um, Jam listed uh, on the dashboard, I was checking, it was listed as a separate entity, was around uh, 6%. Um, so I think it's quite remarkable, definitely, to see um, Blur, which is a relative newcomer, uh, hold uh, that kind of uh, market volume uh, percentage in relative terms for roughly the last uh, two months. Uh, so it's definitely a move by OpenSea uh, to uh, directly compete with Blur, targeting professional uh, NFT traders mainly. A um, couple of other uh, super interesting things. Um, we had Wrigley's, the chewing gum company that everyone knows um, that uh, are developing or working on a Web3 uh, strategy. So they were saying that uh, they're interested in uh, issuing NFTs, uh, which again, I mean, might sound a little bit cliche of, um, let's say, old school traditional companies trying to capitalize on it. But then on the other hand, I think this is very, very encouraging um, because uh, we've got uh, traditional companies uh, being forced or uh, wanting to create Web3 uh, strategies. And then um, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, TravelX, which is an NFT ticketing company, which uh, announced a partnership with an Argentinian airline um, to issue tickets as NFTs, which I think is super exciting. Yeah, I, I, I definitely um, can't wait to see when tickets can be based on NFTs. I have British Airways tickets, I have theater tickets, which I end up not using or selling at a loss or whatever. So something uh, helpful there would, would be good. And then also if, I'm, if my memory serves me correctly and maybe I'm aging myself slightly here, um, but did Wrigley's have like chewing gum cards in the past? So like NFT related cards, is that a direction of travel they're looking to, to like create a collectible? Yeah, so my understanding is that they wanted to basically create a, uh, a, a metaverse where you can buy NFTs uh, specifically for like some Type of chewing gum, uh, so it will be, I guess, quite similar to, to the cards that you mentioned. Amazing, very, very cool, very cool. Um, to David, moving on to macro, got a few bits coming up this week. What do we need to be keeping an eye on? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, so I guess I want to chat about two things. Uh, number one was the labor data we got last week, and number two would be the upcoming inflation data that you're kind of alluding to. Um, first, I would say that labor data, you know, I, I think uh, non-farm payables came in at 236,000. Uh, it was a U.S. holiday, though, last Friday. And I don't really tend to focus on the number itself uh, because I think trying to trading around, trying to trade around the number is just, you know, it, it's futile. But uh, it is important to note that it came in slightly above expectations. And the big issue there is that actually we saw there was a miss in the JOLTS job opening data and the ADP numbers. So... This is fairly significant that it kind of came above because it means that this is probably a real perform outperformance above expectations, um, which is, of course, causing people to price in uh, the higher probability of a hike coming up in the next FOMC meeting. But wage growth, it's more or less moving in line. The unemployment rate came down to three and a half percent. And that's something I want to focus on, because I think a lot of people believe that if you get strong labor data, that basically suggests, you know, a recession isn't going to be uh, possible or it's not going to be really strong. And that's not true. Like we've seen historically that you can actually have a very low unemployment rate and still get a recession. And that has happened uh, at least two times over the last like, uh, I think, 70 years or so. And certainly like it's a possibility here as well. It, it doesn't really give you an indication one way or the other. It's very much a lagging indicator. So uh, I think that's that's one thing to kind of point out. And number two is on the inflation front. 
Um, you know, we're expecting that we're going to be moving away from the six handle fairly soon. And, you know, even though we got the OPEC uh, announcement that, you know, production is actually going to be cut, uh, which, of course, people are suggesting that could uh, potentially put energy prices higher. I would still say that the base effects that will be kicking in and it's not going to be visible probably in this print, but it'll probably be visible in the May print or, you know, which is going to be uh, reflecting the April numbers, for example. I think at that point, it will start pointing to some disinflationary effects that I think ultimately will lead the Fed to start moving away from the rate hikes, ending the cycle, and probably not cutting immediately. The, the Fed doesn't do that. I think anyone who thinks that we can easily move from like hikes to cuts uh, right right away, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, the, the Fed is like a, you know a, a very large like ship. It, it, it takes a, a while to kind of turn. But I think it's still possible that that puts a rate cut in Q4 in play. Um, so this is kind of the macro situation at the moment. Interesting. And, and I know you're talking yesterday, and we'd love to bring Greg in here as well. We were talking about rates for increasing. Um, so we'd love to understand, like, what should we, how should we be thinking about that? And is the bond market saying something different to the equity market? And, and who should we be trusting? Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. Um, so the bond market and the equity markets um, aren't agreeing at the moment. Uh, the bond market is, for the most part, uh, signaling a recession. That's why we're seeing, um, you know, rates uh, trade the way they are. Um, meanwhile, the equity markets held up uh, remarkably well. Now, generally, uh, you know, the bond market is usually uh, right. Um, however, there are some things going on at the moment um, that uh, may challenge that assumption. Uh, specifically, we saw this massive move in, in the two year after the banking crisis um, hit in March. And, and a good portion of that was due to hedge fund positioning. Um, they were you know, massively short, um, expecting higher rates. Um, and then, you know, obviously had to go and, and cover and uh, we got the price action that we did. So, you know, when I look at the market, it, it's very uncertain as to, um, you know, what comes next at this point. I think this data that we're going to get this week um, is, is very important from a macro standpoint. We're also heading into earnings season. Um, you know, we have uh, a few banks reporting this week. Uh, so we're, we're going to learn a lot in the next few days. And, and I would also point out that it's not just like purely, I mean, I, I know I'm showing this chart, which shows you the move index versus the stocks, for example, but it's not just purely about higher rates volatility, but it's really the combination of higher rates volatility and higher rates at the same time. That generally isn't a good setup for stocks, uh, which I don't think it would augur well for crypto either. Um, and as uh, Greg kind of pointed out, you know, like this is going to be a pretty tough earnings season. You know, already Goldman has come out saying that he, they, they expect that uh, the consensus of earnings per share are going to drop around 7% uh, in this in Q1 compared to a year earlier. So if that happens, um, that also could put pressure on that market. So, so I think, for understanding correctly, what you guys are saying is the, the bond market's right, equity market's wrong, and needs to be lower. Is that, is, is that fair? I, I think the current pricing just it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me at this point. Um, honestly, I really don't know. Like, I, I think I'll, I'll be completely frank with that because uh, I don't think the current price makes sense, but at the same time, it's there and I, I'm not going to fight the market. So that's, you know, like th these are the two counter uh, forces that, that we're kind of dealing with at the moment. 
So I guess the million dollar question is, let's say the market does go lower, uh, bottom, the bottom market is right. Like, What happens to Bitcoin at that point? And, and David, start with you. Sorry, putting you on the spot here. Sure. No, I, I've been pretty um, clear on how I feel about that. You know, I, I don't think that we could see, for example, stocks dropping 20% and, you know, crypto Bitcoin being unscathed by that. Um, it doesn't mean that that's going to be a medium long term effect. I think if anything, like my expectation would be probably closer to the end of Q2. Uh, we will see that this combination of recessionary fears hitting alongside uh, the U.S. debt ceiling kind of uh, issues really come to the fore. I think that could create market volatility that kind of puts pressure on crypto prices. But ultimately, we'll see that recovery probably uh, happen over the course of Q3, for example. So it's going to be that dip uh, late Q2, early Q3, and then kind of recovery afterwards as people start to then price in uh, the possibility of rate cuts from, from the Fed, for example. But, you know, even though I think a lot of people's pushback to that is, oh, but, you know, like we've always kind of resolved the, the U.S. debt ceiling crisis. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to get volatility in the interim. And I think that's precisely what could happen here, particularly given how divided uh, our con our government is at the moment and how long it could take to actually resolve that. Got it. And I, I know I'm going to take the other side of it just because it's, it's more fun to have a, have an opposing view. I, I feel like crypto is now at the point where maybe we can run our race a little bit, a little bit um, on, on our own. And when we've had recent equity market weakness, uh, it's actually held up relatively well. Um, it's kind of surprising well at times. So my my hope and obviously who knows what happens here my hope is that this time it kind of plays out and we do actually manage to hold up a little better than uh kind of the high correlation we have seen historically um but greg curious for, for your thoughts and also like any flows that we're seeing off the back of that are people positioning for that uh or are they still kind of really trying to get long and capture the rest of the the, the rally that we might see in btc and ETH? Yeah. So, I mean, first taking kind of how crypto would trade um, if we do enter a recession or if equities do weaken significantly from here. I, I generally agree with David. Um, I think especially like all, all L1s, they would trade significantly lower. The DeFi sector, um, you know, unless we get some uh, favorable regulatory rulings, I'd expect to trade much lower. Bitcoin, however, um, you know, while I could see it coming under some pressure. I would expect it to hold up relatively well. Um, it's still relatively under-owned. Um, and it really, the new narrative is it's a flight to safety. Um, people are buying it as a hedge uh, against financial instability. And if we remember back to the last, you know, real debt ceiling debacle, um, you know, what did incredibly well were treasuries and, and gold, gold ripped. Um, so, you know, if we do come down to the wire again, or if, you know, God forbid, um, you know, we, something even worse happens, uh, I could envision a situation where, where Bitcoin actually trades, um, you know, pretty well. Now, flow wise, um, we're seeing slightly lower volumes, uh, recently. And I, and I think that's because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, We've just come so far so fast and uh, folks are a little uncertain as to what's going to come next. Um, and as we talked about, this is a very hated rally. Um, you know, even the folks that caught a big portion of the move, you know, they feel under allocated. Um, you know, we talk to clients time and time again and, oh, I'm going to buy or add to my position at, at 25 
you know, that, that was yesterday. Obviously, that, that number is likely 28 now, maybe even 30. Um, so I could see a situation where we just continue to uh, grind higher here. Now, what I hope we see is ETH and some of these altcoins catch up. Um, as we've talked about time and time again, you know, the altcoins have really been left out of this rally. They've been used as a source of funds. Um, the DeFi sector, for example, is actually down through March. Um, so, you know, comparing that to the price action of, of BTC and, and ETH, you know, it's, it's really remarkable underperformance. Now, the bifurcation does make sense. BTC, it's a store of value. It's a hedge against financial instability. You know, ETH and altcoins are largely bets on underlying technology, uh, technology that, you know, really has yet to be proven out. Um, and they have this regulatory overhang where BTC uh, doesn't. The SEC has, has called it a commodity. Um, so I think we're seeing this, this divergence in price action, but it, we can explain it. Um, what I'd like to see is, you know, a healthier market where we have, you know, not just BTC <laughs> dominance uh, rising every day. Um, now, institutional flow has been skewed, you know, very much to the buy side. Um, I think the interesting note is we haven't really seen anybody take profits, uh, regardless of whether you're talking about traditional hedge funds, crypto native hedge funds or traditional asset managers. Really, everybody seems happy to stay long at these levels. And that's another reason why it wouldn't surprise me if we continue to grind higher here. Um, what we are seeing is some folks uh, look to the option market to either replace some delta, so do an asset replacement trade, or even add to their positions with options to kind of supercharge uh, any further upside. So, um, you know, it'll be, again, interesting to see how the rest of this week plays out. We have the upgrade coming um, coming tomorrow. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty bullish ETH uh, personally going into that. Um, and obviously, then we have the macro data um, and, and earnings uh, that will also inform price action. So we'll see. And just going back to your point, Greg, around uh, kind of some of the, the DeFi names and, and altcoins really not taking part in the rally. I think two great examples of that are Lido and Uniswap. Both Lido has about $1.3 million of fees a day. Uniswap, just over a billion. The volumes, as we all know, on Uniswap are kind of going through the roof at the moment. But over the past 30 days, with BTC up 36, ETH up 20, we've got Uni up one and Lido down two. And it's it's just like amazing to see that. And if you compare the fees for ETH, the fees for ETH are like four and a half million dollars per per twenty four hours. So there's, there's definitely something that's holding those down. And, and I think to your point uh, earlier on, like lack of regulatory clarity there is is really putting a dampener on those. But when we get some clarity, that'll be interesting to see how they how they trade. Yeah, absolutely. And, and flow wise, we've really seen uh, you know all of March into you know with the beginning of April here. Um, very little interest in, you know, Uniswap, Lido, uh, Makers, any of your sort of uh, tier one altcoins. Um, we've really seen, seen very little interest. This is, uh, has been and continues to be a Bitcoin story and to a lesser extent ETH. And, you know, that may change somewhat tomorrow. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Cool. Thanks, Greg. So moving on to DeFi Web3, Sid, what can we get excited about? What is going to kickstart this engine for some of these uh, altcoins to, to rally? Um, 
the big source of excitement, I mean, there's a few things. One is, of course, um, you know, we, we're, we're all looking forward to tomorrow in the Web3 world for the Chappella upgrade. Uh, if it goes through successfully, uh, it has a huge ripple impact uh, on the rest of DeFi. Uh, the largest DeFi protocol today in terms of total value locked is Lido, uh, which holds around like $11.8 billion worth of Ether. It's actually staked Ether is a top 10 crypto by market cap now. Uh, so, you know, obviously rippling impacts across the industry, uh, but also, you know, we have the upcoming uh, ZK season. Um, there's been over, you know, several hundred thousand wallets that have deposited into ZK Sync era, their, their mainnet that launched last week. And uh, ZK EVM from Polygon is also seeing significant adoption. So we'll probably see these chains move into more into the forefront. Uh, and also continuing from the Arbitrum airdrop uh, from a few weeks ago, uh, Arbitrum on-chain volumes continue to stay pretty high, uh, so haven't really dropped off materially post airdrop. So there is some, you know, substance there in terms of capital remaining there. Um, that's from the DeFi perspective. Uh, uh, there, you, there's also a couple of negatives, of course. Uh, uh, this past week, uh, a few days ago, we had an exploit on uh, on SushiSwap, uh, where uh, their router contract uh, had a had a kind of flaw in their approval function and uh, this led to over three million dollars in losses uh, but most of the funds have been recovered now apparently according to their head developer but uh, it did lead to a bit of panic P folks had to were urged to revoke permissions uh for that contract if they had interacted with sushi swap within the past week um and, and it led to a lot of folks kind of scrambling but as obviously it was a pretty popular dex Interesting. How did that? How are they recovering those funds? Like with the the year of the hack, like those are all pretty much back now from what could be recovered. And that was two hundred million dollars. Like how how are these projects getting uh, better at recovering these funds? Yeah, I think part of it, uh, the, the the official stated reason is like it's a white hack initiative uh, where the hacker themselves voluntarily return the funds uh, in return for some undisclosed bounty. But uh, I think the meta narrative here is it's actually genuinely hard to stay anonymous in today's uh, world, uh, especially with the kind of relative lack of usage of tornado cash um, and, you know, not as much liquidity in other privacy preserving applications. Um, generally, the best course of action is to kind of return the funds, especially if you're exploiting from an open protocol, because, you know, a lot of users are impacted. Uh, and so and also on chain, the flow of funds is very visible. So uh, it's pretty interesting. Actually, one other interesting point of note was uh, last week we mentioned in the call of an exploiter exploiting MEV bots uh, on the validator side. Um, so, you know, a few days ago, that address was actually blacklisted by USDT. Um, they held some USDT in their, in their address. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of places where, you know, on-chain is very visible if you're an exploiter and it's you kind of have a target on your back. So um you know the game theory has changed interesting and is that is that the first time us tether have blacklisted an address uh there have been other instances before but this is the first time it's been so quick and it's also like in response to uh, an mev exploit so you know pretty That's interesting because that that mev uh, exploit they went they loaded that wallet via aztec i believe mm -hmm. which is obviously a privacy preserving uh layer so they, they kind of went through to try and not be found, but by their sounds of it, even the, the rewards they got are now useless from a USDT perspective. Exactly, exactly. They had some worth in Bitcoin, wrapped Bitcoin, but uh, the USDT is rendered useless, yeah.
And, and does that mean at this point they can no longer exchange that into ETH or anything like that? It's it's locked and it's it's essentially entirely useless. And yeah, pretty much. Basically, it, it, uh, there's a kind of a centralized control where if the funds are frozen, you can't even move them anywhere. Uh, so it's just kind of dead dead weight. Wow. So uh, Tether, the, um, the the judge and the executioner of uh, for, for that particular example. Um, wow. So and also with Chappelle tomorrow, like what what are you going to be doing? Like what are the times that we need to set our alarms for? Like what are the websites you're going to be looking at? Like how, how do we get a sense of like the success here? Like my, my sense is if we start to see success, we should start to see ETH, ETH rally a little bit. So how do we get ahead of that? And actually, what are the things we should be looking at? Yeah, for sure. So technically speaking, this Chappelle upgrade is scheduled to go live on uh, Epoch 194048, uh, which, you know, in human terms is uh, uh, approximately around uh, 1030 uh, UTC, 1030 p.m. UTC uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of around the time range in which, uh, you know, folks should probably keep an eye out. Um, but uh you know, in terms of the actual impact and where to track this, you know, there's going to be a live viewing party on Twitter by ETH Staker. But, uh, but one website that's particularly useful that's come out um, uh, is called rated.network. Uh, so if you go to rated.network slash overview, uh, you can kind of see the active validator exit queue. And, and they've also done a lot of labeling on what validators are actually exiting. So whether that's Lido or Coinbase, et cetera. Um, and, and you can see that queue live on the website. Uh, so they've, they've just launched that feature today. Uh, and there's most likely will be other uh, sources as well, but uh, this is a great uh, resource. And, uh, and in terms of uh, stuff to watch out for, uh, stuff that we'll be actively be tracking and uh, kind of keep our eyes out on is activity on chain. Um, so to kind of, as a refresher, what's actually gonna happen tomorrow in terms of withdrawals is, uh, you know, partial, there's two types of withdrawals. There's partial and full withdrawals. Uh, and a partial withdrawal is just, uh, you know, stakers withdrawing like accrued staking rewards. Um, and the process is automatic if a validator has set their, you know, configurations correctly. Uh, whereas full withdrawals uh, means that the validator actually has to uh, exit uh, fully, including their staked amount, as well as all the accrued rewards. And this is subject to a withdrawal queue, which is what we refer to as when we say monitoring the queue. Um, and so this queue is expected to, you know, fill up pretty quickly and, you know, last for and spread out in terms of the full withdrawals being, uh, you know, actually withdrawn over the course of several weeks, several months. Uh, so we'll see that play out. Um, but uh, we'll be looking at flows on chain, especially towards uh, DEXs and towards uh, centralized exchanges. Um, the ripple effect, as I mentioned with Lido, it's one of the largest assets in crypto right now, staked Ether. Uh, and similarly, there's CB staked Ether and, and other variants as well. It'll be interesting to see how those liquid stake derivatives uh, behave on chain in terms of their price and their peg. Because, you know, essentially part of the risk is kind of mitigated with ETH being withdrawal, but, but, but also as part of the use case of these liquid stake derivatives is also, uh, you know, uh, kind of lessened because, you know, ETH is... A little more liquid uh, at this point from tomorrow onwards so we'll see how that plays out 
That's awesome. Thank you very much, Sid. One to watch. We'll, we'll post the URL for that in the notes of the show as well. Other dates to keep an eye on before we wrap up um, is the 18th of April, where uh, Gensler is due to be in front of the House Committee. And then also the 5th of June is a date by which we expect, or the legal experts rather expect, to potentially see a result from the Ripple case. So two other dates your diary, and that is it for, for this week. Thanks for joining. Um, good luck tomorrow, everybody, and we'll see you next week. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.